So my name is Eric Schaefer. I'm at the moment chairman of Fact International AG, a company in Essen located uh, doing international investments. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this episode, recorded in early 2020, we introduce Eric Schaefer, serial entrepreneur, investor, advisor, and part of Vehau's first graduating class of 1988. This guy has done some stuff. From founding a consultancy while in uni, to linking German capital to early Silicon Valley companies, from building mines in Australia to greenhouses in China, Eric is one of Vehau's true OG entrepreneurs. Today we're discussing Eric's rich and fascinating founder journey, learning about his approach to building an adventurous entrepreneurial life, and squeezing as much wisdom and lessons as we can out of one interview alone. So for you listeners out there who want to learn about an entrepreneurial journey that spans a full four decades, this episode is for you. Hope you enjoy it. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Eric Schaefer, thank you so much for having me in your lovely offices here in Essen today. Um, it's, uh, it was a real great pleasure to meet you in Berlin. Obviously, um, you know, you are one of the original Vehauers. Um, so I've been looking forward to having this conversation, learning a little bit more about your story. Thank you. Um, so what I like to do with all of the guests on the show is kind of start with a, a little bout of storytelling. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about your experience of, as an entrepreneur, where you started and how you got to where you are today. Thank you. Well, um, I believe I was an entrepreneur not knowing it all my life. Um, it may have, I did, I did do what Germans did at that time before they studied economics. They made a bank apprenticeship. I worked uh, some time at the bank. And then uh, already even in picking my university, maybe that had some entrepreneurial spirit. I went to VAU, first year student. We were about 52 students, uh, one professor, uh, one secretary, and that was uh, what was called a university. So uh, in hindsight, I believe there was already, already some entrepreneurial spirit to jump on that little nutshell. Um, after that, uh, well, I found it, obviously, being one of the students of the first generation, we, you had to found all things because they didn't exist. We founded whatever, uh, the sports club at, at Veru, we founded several of the activities which are still ongoing. After we graduated, we founded in Praxi the uh, alumni organization, the Impraxi Foundation later on. So that was a founder situation, uh, just not business-wise, but as well um, organization-wise, just from the mentality. Um, my first company I founded while I, while I still was at VAU in my diploma final year, um, a small management consultancy um, uh, together with another VAU student. Um, at the time it was funny, we were uh, featured in, 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 in Wirtschaftswoche uh, that we would work and, and consult banks in Germany for small uh, subjects. And they wrote somehow that we would be working some 60 hours for that uh, startup per, per, per week. And then um, Jürgen Weber, who was dean at the time, uh, came to me uh, and said, Mr. Schaefer, I'm sure Wirtschaftswoche got it wrong. And they told you, and you told them that you worked 60 hours for VAU for your studies. So we had a little bit of a, of, of a, of a, of a tough time there. But it was, uh, no, that was already uh, in, in the first year. The first real company I founded uh, exactly in, after graduation, 1988, um, a company located in New York and San Diego, uh, looking for investments in uh, the early Silicon Valley days. 
So what made you decide, I mean, so many, at least Veja students now go come out of the university, go into, you know, the big five consulting firms or, or go into large organizations. What made you decide to grab a friend and a partner and start as an entrepreneur? I always wanted to be my own boss. Uh, so I worked as a student. I had a student uh, consulting job at, at Merrill Lynch in London, and uh, they gave me a an offer to work for them after after university and it was a six-digit offer it was thrilling but I told my boss um, uh, uh, Fred Lutz at the time Fred thank you but I'm not taking it and, and he was a little bit disappointed because he thought that was a really generous offer uh, but I said, no, I, I don't know why, but I never want to work for a large company. I always fear that then you get uh, cog in the wheel and that you're just um, part of the big machine. I want to be my own boss. And he said, okay, I accept it. What are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm founding my own co consultancy to other VIO students. And um, so uh, that is what we'll do. And then he said, okay, Eric, do you have clients already? I said, no. So would you mind if we become your first client? And I said, uh, sh sure. I was a little bit uh, between flattered and a little bit, I felt a little bit stupid because he only wanted me to work for him. He didn't want to have me on his payroll. So that is how I got the first client, the Merrill Lynch Group, banking group in London. And we did a lot of work for them for the first three to four years in uh, several major European cities in the private client wealth management business. Wow. Wow, that's, uh, that's pretty fortunate. As someone that started a consultancy out of school as well, I felt very nervous in that experience because, you know, you're in consulting, you're kind of expected to have expertise in a particular field and you were probably, I imagine, still in the phase of learning. Did you learn on the fly or did you feel prepared for that? Uh, well, we learned on the fly, that is certainly for sure. And um, I, we, were, we, were, we did do good jobs in the respect there was a small team around the chairman. He always wanted to have some, some whatever, uh, I call it an A-team. He wanted to just, uh, whether we, we should found a bank in Germany, whether we should restructure the, the business between Milano and Lugano, whether we should have in Geneva an office to serve the European market, um, whether to buy a bank or a broker, an agent de change in, in France, uh, where they had the, what they called the Petit Big Bang at the time, uh, that foreign companies were allowed to invest in France. So he needed people who were very um, who were generalistic, who just could jump on a case and then deep dive into it. And that maybe was something we learned at VAU, and we were quite well prepared for that. So he liked our approach, and so uh, it was a very good and long-lasting client relationship. So you started a small consultancy right in, in your young age, right out of university. Tell me a little more about where you went from there. Yeah, that the consultancy grew uh, and after about seven or eight years, um, I, it, it, it went, became bigger and bigger. It, uh, in one respect, I didn't like to, to see it grow so, so big because you had to add a layer of management into it, so I was not doing what I love to do, to create things. We are all, our clients were always, as well, founding situations. A company who wanted to found a new business line, and we were helping them to do it. Uh, so um, that was one thing that the company became too big. Um, I sold it at the time, and another situation was that uh, at the time I was planning on founding a, comp uh, a family, so and I didn't want to necessarily be uh, four days at my clients, fifth day in the office, sixth and seventh day doing the bookkeeping. So uh, then I said, I've now sufficient uh, expertise and experience in learning how to build businesses, learning how to found something. Now I want to do it on my own account. That was maybe around the years 96, 97, uh, eight, seven, eight years after graduation. Gotcha. So you said you then went to the U.S.? Did I yes. understand that? Yes, that was the, uh, the U.S. time. Well, I, I lived in Germany, but business-wise, we invested uh, then in the first years in the Silicon Valley. That was a little bit pre the Internet world. It was more into um, the medical devices, catheter stents, minimal invasive surgery, uh, matters. Um, and it was always the same 
um, investment pattern. There was always a professor at Stanford University, and he took a graduate, and there were some founders from, from Sand Hill Road in Palo Alto, where about 40% of the global venture capital was, private equity, and there was this pizza place right in the middle of it. So we all had lunch there, and with the deals were thrown over the tables between the different uh, venture capitalists, So and then we picked some up and we, we uh, followed them up with some German uh, funding that we then generated here in Germany. So that was a, a fun time. Um, and uh, that was really when I began to learn how this venture capital and private equity and founding world works. Gotcha. Wow. That must have... What, what years were those in the valley? 96 to 2000. Maybe. Gotcha. Was, would you say the writing was on the wall? Did you see what was what was coming? Yes, yeah, you could see it because everybody, you know, I learned at that time, when you wanted to found uh, a company, you have to be six or eight years earlier already a deal scout, a trend scout, to see what will be coming, because you need some time to build companies up, and if the world discovers it, you have, you have to be on the sales side. So, um, uh, when I came back to Germany, uh, people were always too late when there was a trend and it was already getting big. Then everybody jumps on it and says, oh, now we do it as well. Too late, too late. So there was a, an early learning that you have to be, uh, as what I said, a deal scout and, and uh, a trend scout and uh, whatever, looking a little bit into the future, not with a crystal ball, but there's some te techniques to learn that. I know, you know, at that time, there were definitely some Germans in Silicon Valley. Most of them were the graduate students coming out of Stanford, you know, that, I mean, Sun Microsystems or number of companies that came from uh, German innovation in the Valley. Was there a lot of German capital or were you one of the few? Uh, not too much German capital at the, uh, at the time. We did see some of the very large German uh, names uh, which uh, are still uh, uh, around there, but they had already their f fully fledged structure, so there was not too much interaction with them. So that was it. Was it easy to get German capital into that ecosystem? Well, it was not really uh, easy because uh, people didn't understand over here. They didn't understand what was going on. Uh, now everybody says, oh, valley, valley, valley. But that at the time it was building up. It was already in, in the US, it was big, but um, then it was still difficult to convince Germans to give a, a bunch of three or four founders money and then uh, that their uh, a, a big, uh, big exit would result out of that. Right. So you, so you were there in the late 90s. Yes. Um, did that trickle into the early 2000s and the bubble burst? It did, yes, yes. Um, we, uh, so, although I was during the bubble burst time, I was already back in Germany, and that was a, a time when I, uh, we founded uh, together with another four students uh, of the year, must have, might be 99, we founded a company here that um, has then uh, grown first, but really was uh, wiped out through the bubble. That is um, a situation. It was one year after um, Alando and, and eBay was founded by the Zamva uh, family. Uh, and so the next student generation wanted to do not the uh, selling side, but the purchasing side out of it. We had a great company, and we would do it all the same again. Um, we had uh, Professor Albach uh, as in the supervisory board, Hans-Olaf Henkel at the time, who was then still BDE president, uh, Fürstein Wittgenstein, and a, a bunch of 
great supporters, great people. We did do everything right, but then timing was wrong. Uh, so we had our uh, a large capital round in May, in March 2000, and I believe I say 9th of March, and the 18th of March was the highest point in the NEMAX, in the um, new market index, which fell then from 9,800 to whatever, 200 points, whatever it was. So um, no chance to survive. So um, it was, that was a big failure. And then um, that is as well uh, one of my learnings uh, that you have to get the timing right. So that is uh, as well one of those... I don't know if you, I would call it a fuck-up, but it was something where you really uh, did, did do the right thing. And I, in the same circumstances, I would do exactly the same thing. But then afterwards, you see, wow, something extraordinary happened in the outside world, and um, you just uh, were unlucky with your timing. Right. Well, that's why I think we always need to differentiate between fuck-ups and failure. Because yeah, they're yeah. not always the same thing, you know. There are external forces beyond your control Absolutely. that can that can lead to failure for sure. Absolutely. You said you raised capital for that business. Was that the first time you raised equity capital in one of your companies? Uh, no, I always did it uh, from from the early days. I, uh, and then, well, in the beginning, it was always me and some founders sitting around a table and a handful of investors. And in the beginning. I and we uh, could only put a very small amount of capital in, in something. We brought an idea onto paper, uh, the, the pitch desks or the early PowerPoint presentations, as you would have called them by then. And then um, people said, OK, we're going to trust you. We put in the money, but Eric, make sure that uh, we don't lose our money. And then, yes, sir. And then we ran and then we uh, tried to make most out of it. So later on, we didn't uh, need all the money because then uh, you had your own money to invest. But then there was a group of investors which always followed you and you had those. That is as well an important point um, when you raise money, be it as a startup or in my situation of, of, of uh, uh, arranging startups or in arranging investments, you need to know the people for long term when uh, when you want to do business with them. They need to know your character, you need to know them, and uh, only after some time they will open up and, and invest in something. So maybe another takeaway out of all those years, uh, build up a network and a long-term relationship network. Uh, you can't start too early with that. Right. And I think that's why the sophisticated investors say, we don't invest in ideas, we invest in people. Yeah, you know, The ideas can change, but... It's finding the right people is the secret sauce. Absolutely. So I want to continue on the entrepreneurial journey side because you, I think you've gotten us to the early 2000s and we still have another 15 plus years or so. I'd love, love to hear where you went from. So the bubble burst, shit hit the fan proverbially and... 9-11 uh, happened and all of that. So there was nothing here in this part of the world to do really. Uh, and uh, not even to mention that the second Iraq war was ahead and all of that. So uh, doom and gloom. And I don't, I hate that. I always have to have a positive environment. I, and uh, then I developed a pattern to say, so somewhere in the world, countries are rising, regions are rising, there is a positive business. Somewhere in the world, regions are down or whatever. Then there are industries, new industries are rising and some industry die. So what I did, I made a kind of um, a cross and I looked where in the world are, is, are regions on the uprise and where are industries on the uprise. So um, that is a pattern I developed at the time, which I then continued over the last 15 years. Um, and then um, uh, I, I uh, at the time, what I did was to see, look, uh, where in the world would be the next place for me to go. Um, what happened was in 2001, China became a member of the World Trade Organization. And I um, said, uh, what is if such a country go, uh, becomes a member of the industrial uh, society? Um, and then I see, uh, what, do, what would they need first? And then I see, well, they will have to build things, they will need energy, if, and then they will need a lot of natural resources. Um, so if you build, you need steel. For steel, you need iron ore and, 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 and uh, coal. Uh, for, uh, and then when people get 
richer, they need copper because there is phone lines and there is plumbing thing. And then when they get richer, they need aluminium because they build airplanes and can afford to fly and all of that. So those, those patterns worked. And I said, okay, I want to do something there. But uh, I didn't dare to do something in China itself because people told me they are very Western when they want to do business, but they turn very Eastern when it comes to problems. So uh, I didn't really dare to do that. And then by a kind of a coincidence, a friend brought to my attention a project in Australia, a natural resources project, because that Australian guy didn't want to finance or fund it in Australia, as he feared that one of the big guys would kind of take it away from him. So um, I said, let's have a look. We went down to Australia. We liked the people. We liked the situation. And the idea was then to build a mine, a natural resources a coal mine at the time, uh, clean coal, uh, thermal coal, for the market to be shipped to China. As we then learned that it's much cheaper logistically to ship the product from Australia to China, then whatever, to mine it in China's north and then use small barges to bring it to the south. So therefore, now I had my idea, looking again into the world, to see if you want to serve the market from China, but not from within China, then I, I landed and ended up in Australia. So what we did, we um, founded a, a, a large company in Australia, a, a coal mining company. Uh, we bought uh, 2,200 2, hectares of land. We uh, made built a big rail loadout. I got a large uh, Wall Street investment bank with a couple of hundred million dollars investment into it. Um, and we had built a, a huge company by the year two, 2007, 2008. And um, that was really, and, and today if you go to Australia to see the mine, it's, it's one of the uh, well, largest and, and best developments over those, over, over those years. But here comes the catch. That was a, another learning from me. If we would have sold it like I wanted to do it in 2007, uh, but then my friends from Wall Street, they said, no, 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 Eric, wait another year, it'll double in value. Uh, but then that uh, next year never came. Oh, Another it did burst, It yeah. did come, but the other bubble, bubble burst. So after the Lehman crisis, that investment bank uh, was, went, was uh, nearly down to ashes, so they did fire sales all over the place. So in the end, they sold that whole thing. And, you know, as they were the main financiers. I was chairman of the board, and I was possibly the only non-partner of that large investment bank who was a, a, a chairman of, of a consolidated company there. Uh, so therefore, uh, I did have a strong role, but nevertheless, they had the right through all those drag-along, tag-along rights, as, as we all know them. Uh, so they, they sold the baby, um, but uh, for a fraction, for a fraction of, of, of the value that it could have had uh, if we would have run the business. So that was another learning from my side. Uh, if you have a long-term non-linear investment, Never do it with quarterly earnings, linear thinking, bonus-driven investment bankers. So that was another big learning curve to say um, uh, uh, you need to have find the right investors for the right investments as well. Well, it's, there's always that contrast, and I've talked about it with my, my colleague before about different types of capital, right? And when you have capital that's operating on quarterly earnings reports that can really run into walls for people that are trying to build longer term sustainable absolutely. companies, especially absolutely. ones that aren't publicly traded at that point. Absolutely, absolutely. No, no, but so that this is, well, we're having this podcast and I believe um, some of the thoughts is as well, uh, me being a, a lifelong entrepreneur, um, what what I might uh, take out as well and what, which advice could I maybe give? And so those are as well certain things uh, that you really have to find the right investors for the right projects. Otherwise, um, you have a problem. Bum 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 b
So you you went through the mining game in Australia. This is a fascinating story so far. So you went through this experience building a mine in Australia. You hit the second big bust cycle of your career time. Um, can you lead us up yes. to where you are today? Um, I, then the next project was as I was a little bit in that energy business from the uh, and in the mining business. So I went into uh, I continued mining. I'm still involved in in in, in an iron ore mine in in Turkey. I did do some mining in Mongolia. I did do uh, mining in in South Africa, some gold mining. So some projects where I'm still involved in. Um, and uh, because you build your portfolio over time then and then but the other angle was of that business of that coal mine which it was steaming coal thermal coal to be used in, in coal-fired power plants the cleanest coal of the world um, uh, low sulfur low, no nitrogen contents um, and uh, then you were in the energy business and I said at the time already that is what I say you have to look ahead for five to ten years I said it will not continue this coal mining business and it we have to do clean energy businesses so the next project that i looked for was again so what will be the next game in renewable energy and um, then that second angle of my thinking in which region of the world so um, i came up sitting back in germany i say um, okay the nordics at the time were quite um, interesting. Uh, everybody wanted to invest in Scandinavia, Sweden, Norway it was really the hot spot. And then uh, renewable energy, that was my next project uh, where I went and I founded a series of uh, wood chip and uh, pellet fired power plants projects. I, I looked for my niche. So there were the big players like the Vattenfalls, the Eons, um, and, and, and Stadtkrafts and you name them, they only wanted to have big projects. And then um, there was, um, uh, and the cities didn't have money as they don't have here. And the money they have, they rather build a kindergarten or a hospital than looking for their energy. So that was my niche where I said, let's build up a portfolio of some 10 to 15 or 20 um, uh, renewable energy companies, then wrap it and then sell it to a whatever Dutch pension fund who uh, wants to have it as, as uh, just an, um, an alternative asset. So that's how we started. We bought and built the first three and uh, we, we, we reconstructed some oil fired into pellet driven and then we had a little bit of, if I call it luck, so at the time uh, when Germany had the uh, nuclear exit, uh, then all of the energy companies needed a lot of money, the EONs, the RWEs, so they sold everything to generate cash, and they sold as well their, um, their portfolio of, of, of uh, power plants, of, of um, wood chip and uh, pellet-driven power plants in, in, in um, Scandinavia and Sweden. So there were 15 bidders, only one was lucky, uh, obviously. So the 14 bidders went home without having been successful to buy this. And then this was a partly semi-open uh, process. So I called the others and said, hey, well, I, I have a little portfolio here myself. So, and then it was just a little, I, I would, you could call it a rat race. So after six weeks, I, I, I've sold the whole portfolio to a London-based, um, well, number three, a private equity fund in, in Europe. Uh, so that was a quick deal uh, to get to uh, capitalize then on this renewable energy situation. Um, and then I continued a little bit in the renewable energy uh, field as well in building uh, hydropower plants in uh, the southeast, uh, southeast European region, uh, the Balkan states, um, small and uh, medium scale um, uh, runoff river uh, hydrogen plants. That was um, my development there, and uh, but came, I came back to China as well, seeing now um, really what is going on in China with all those consumers coming. I was in China uh, while I was building up and then later on selling the mine. Our coal mine had been bought by Chinese investors, the fourth largest Chinese conglomerate. Um, so I was... Um, uh, quite quite familiar with the situation and then I just monitored look there are so many consumers coming up 
China lifted the wages since 2010, and there was a whole bunch of um, uh, a couple of hundred million consumers all on the rise. So at the moment, maybe 250 million people have the amount to spend equivalent to what we call in German the Mittelstand. Um, and uh, these people, what do they do? They do whatever people do uh, all over the globe when they have a little more money, uh, buy a little better food, uh, buy maybe a car, a little bit of a housing, the latest laptop, the latest smartphone, do a little bit of holidays, uh, looking after the health, and all of that. So we looked again a region and um, a segment to say the consumers in China, and then we looked into that, and we decided we'll go for um, for healthy nutrition. Um, and Chinese people eat a lot of um, uh, vegetables in in all their cooking, so we. Um, uh, looked what is the best thing for us to do. So we Europeans, starting from the Dutch with their greenhouses, we Germans with our machinery, and with especially our good reputation in China as being uh, a very professional and reliable uh, parties. Um, uh, so the 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 Dirguo, the the word for Germany in China, China means land of, of virtue. So it's, uh, we really had a very good start there, and then we. Uh, went to build out a, a portfolio of greenhouses uh, to build tomatoes, to grow tomatoes, uh, cucumbers, vegetables. So in the meantime, and uh, all of them are about 10 hectares altogether, uh, 10, 10 of them, uh, that's uh, 1 million square meters as a first start to serve the Chinese markets. We have now built three, um, we have three joint ventures and um, we have now the first uh, 10 or 20 million euros invested in the country and um, on, on the next project altogether that'll be a 200 million dollar euro project from our side and in investment. So at this point are you more on the kind of private equity side? Are you leveraging the capital for these projects? It's in between. It's in between. It always, what is thrilling for me is always to I need always a pioneer situation, and I need an, an industry where I'm kind of familiar with. I love to be in new countries, in new situations, maybe uh, as well uh, a little bit. Uh, other people go and travel the world. I go and found companies. Um, and um, as you're always into new industries, I never do the same thing twice. So that is a little bit of... Um, uh, a bad point because uh, you're always building new uh, new networks, new relationships in new parts of the world. So therefore, um, that is maybe something wh where other people would rather build on one industry and then grow something. If you're a serial entrepreneur, and I found out uh, after about 10 years, which was maybe the second half of the 90s, uh, where I'm good at, and that is to build something. I'm, I'm, I'm not an inventor. I'm not, I always need somebody who has an idea already. Most often when I meet people, they messed around with it a little bit, weren't able to finance it. And then I said, let's have a look. And then what I'm good at is to make something big out of something small. But once it's big, I have to let go and let a professional manager run it. That's what I did in all my investments. In Australia, I hired all the, the management from uh, Ruhrkohle AG, who had sold all their mines in, in Australia. I hired them. In Sweden, I hired the chief technology officer from Vattenfall, Professor Strömberg, who to run my businesses. Because I have, I have an idea, and I, I, I smell between the industry and the region that there is something. But I've never done it in the country. Uh, so I need always the experts to do it. Um, because I, uh, I don't want to do, uh, I don't want to mess around and uh, be going down the learning curve. But uh, that is always what, what worked well. So uh, once it's built up, I, I'll let go. That is a little bit my, my pattern. So you're kind of the scale up guy. The scale up guy. Yeah, that's a hard job to do, you know, yeah. like, because I'm the early guy. 
you know, and getting it up to that next level. You know, they say the hardest part is not founding or stabilizing. It's adding the zeros in between, yes. you know, and grow, growing it up. I'm curious about moving into China a little bit. I'd like to ask a question about that because one of my first companies, I had a Chinese business partner and we were in graduate school together and I actually helped him edit his thesis and it was on the topic of Guangxi, yes. you know, this culturally ingrained, uh, the importance of those relationships, you know, as someone that j has jumped into new markets and new countries, what have you learned about some of the obstacles or the opportunities in terms of having to foster pretty meaningful relationships in a country like China? Absolutely. Now, uh, without the relationship, don't even try. Um, I happened to have in, in two instances, we were quite lucky to just meet people I, I always meet people, and, and uh, in one of my functions, I'm uh, in the presidency of the European Chamber of uh, Technology, and in that respect, we did do a lot of Chinese delegation trips to uh, numerous cities. And in all those uh, cities, you meet whatever, in those business functions and in matchmaking events, you meet some 20 people in every city, and if you're there for a week, you do have met uh, so and so many people. Out of those, maybe one or two come out where you see there is a certain um, sympathy, an affection, you, you, there is some understanding without words, and then you build on those relationships. So the first three to six months, I don't make business with the people. You get to know each other, you see each other a second time, a third time, and then you begin to sense, uh, would it make sense to work together? Especially in China, this Guangxi, this network, this cobweb of relationship is extremely important. In a country of a billion people, you need to have a close a network of, of people you trust. And whoever is in that Guangxi network is, um, uh, you do everything for him or her and the other way around. Everything who is outside, isn't the outside world, doesn't really exist. So once you understood that and you build those relationships, um, that was um, an important learning for me. I, l I learned of it in my first China around 2008 to 2012, and since 2015, since I'm back in the country, I'm really building on it. And I must say, uh, the people that I did meet so far and where we did found the joint ventures, um, they, they are 100%, it's like a family uh, all over the place. It's really wonderful. Once you're in, you're in. Great. Um, you know, it's, we've interviewed quite a few entrepreneurs on this, this podcast. You know, most of them are um, building their first or second businesses. You know, um, to have this opportunity to talk to someone that has had so many different experiences over the course of uh, a few decades, I think that's a, this is a nice place to kind of share some of your lessons with the aspiring or early entrepreneurs that are, that are listening. And I, we touched a little bit about fuck-ups. So maybe you can uh, impart some of your wisdom and share first a few of your biggest, you know, I, I should say that there's probably no better way to learn as an entrepreneur than making mistakes because it is embedded in your psyche. Like I will never forget my big mistakes in business. They're ingrained in my head in a way that I might wake up in a cold sweat one day still thinking of them. Like, um, 
Maybe you could share some of those kind of most ingrained lessons that you've learned from your mistakes. Sure, sure, sure. Oh, I'd love to, because I believe that is what is important for everybody. Um, in Germany, it's still a little bit, uh, if you have a failure, then people don't touch you. That is unfortunately still the case. I love people who have failures, uh, two, three, four, because you learn from them the most. Um, and uh, especially the American understanding, if you didn't screw up one company, you're not worth being funded or whatever, if I, if I call it that way. Um, so it's still in Germany a little bit the other way around. So we have to develop that culture that if you try something, you have the risk of failure. Failure, absolutely. Um, well, my first thing was possibly in the early 90s, after that, uh, that um, we founded that uh, company, the consulting firm. Uh, at the time, all those uh, the, the PCs came up, and uh, mainframes were not any longer um, uh, the, the, the future. And everybody who knew how to plug a cable into the two PCs was a network specialist. Mm -hmm. So we founded a network company at the time, which grew quite fast. Some 40, 50 people we had out of our banking clients from the consulting side, a good clientele from Munich, uh, who, uh, Frankfurt, Berlin. We opened offices in, 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 in Frankfurt, in Munich, in Berlin. We had our home base in Düsseldorf and in Leipzig um, at the time. And, and then uh, this became bigger and we went, uh, we said, let's do an, a little IPO on that. So we were in talks with Deutsche Bank, Deutsche Beteiligungsgesellschaft from them, and they said, oh, that's great, and it fits wonderful. We were already discussing to change the name because it was too long to fit on the, uh, on the list. And um, we were really wonderfully about it, and then they said, oh, but you have to have more offices. You ne we need to get it bigger. So I ran and ran and did all what they told me. One morning on a Wednesday, sometimes in 1993, I came into their office, and they said, well, uh, Mr. Schaefer, we decided, the bank decided not to fund any computer uh, companies any longer because there was a, a, just a, a, a sharp uh, price decline, which was the first big cycle uh, really having been seen. So, and we always needed some two to three months. We needed to order the computers. We, we needed to, to configure them, deliver them, install everything, write the bill, and get six weeks later the money. So we needed some three months of funding. And if you have a growing business, that increases uh, exponentially, obviously. So, and uh, then they said, well, uh, all those de declining prices, we just decided not to fund any computer business any longer. So um, that is, uh, and I said, okay, what does it mean for me? Well, that means that we cannot do the IPO and that means that we cannot um, su uh, support you any longer. Goodbye and have a nice life. So <laughs> that is how they ended that story. So I was standing there, have done everything what they told me to go to, the, go to this IPO thing. Luckily, my banker, who um, at the time certainly has given me more money than he should have given, he uh, had feared he would have a bigger problem than I um, in the, if he would have uh, now cancelled my credit line. So we found a solution where I said, okay, people told me, Eric, that's too much to, 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 uh, get, to earn, so why don't you uh, file for insolvency? I said, I'll never do that. I'll, um, well, if I have to, I have to, but I'll never do that on a free basis. I'll fight and I'll earn the money that I um, have to repay. And that was a good feeling. Uh, I, uh, with the consulting firm, I earned enough money to, uh, and I remember the day in 1997 when I paid the last rate of that credit from 1993, which was uh, then uh, really a good thing because I said, I have to look into my face, into my mirror every day in the morning with shaving. I will not just uh, give in and, and, and give up. That's, um, that was a learning. So what is a learning out of that? Um, never trust a person from the financing world who promises anything. Uh, well, I, I have to be careful. I'm, I'm still working with some, some bankers uh, around in my life. But it is, it is really something. It's not their money. They are just looking uh, for the flavor of the month. 
and then uh, they dr drop you as fast as they pick you up because they thought you were valuable. So that is certainly one thing that you should learn out of those those situations. On the other hand, it was good that that that, that one banker uh, was uh, had I had a good relationship with. He began asking about my health status, so it was good. <laughs> so I, then I realized uh, he had as much a big problem as I had. So we we then mutually worked worked our way out out of that out of that bit. It was not a life crisis because the consulting firm was making enough money, but you don't want to make money on the one hand and spend it on the other. So that was was the situation there. Yes, and um, um, then I'm not sure what would be uh, other ideas that you were thinking of of uh, how which lessons are which which advice to give from out of those difficult situations well i mean i, I think that first one is is really great i think there's a an, another spin one of my mentors one of my first investors told me when i was first raising capital that how important that relationship is with your banker like we actually went around through the network and spent a couple hours before we even decided where to bank small amounts of money at the very beginning because having those relationships being able to pick up the phone and call the president of the bank and get things to move quickly is can be really really important that was although one lesson at the time that might might have changed but was as well you have to change banks once you grow because when i went when I founded that company, it was um, I went to uh, to the bank, which was Sparkasse Koblenz at the time, to raise fifty thousand Deutschmarks, and then they asked for all sort of securities, whether my father could write uh, what a, um, a guarantee and all of that stuff, and so w when we grew, so they when we doubled uh, the, the the credit line from fifty to hundred thousand, they said, oh, but you're worth at fifty, and then it went to hundred twenty-five. We needed the money. We made good money, but we needed more. But we were in the bracket of fifty thousand with the guy. So what I did do then with the next banker, I said it doesn't work with those guys. I went to Commerzbank and said, hey, I need five hundred thousand. And then I was in the bracket of 500,000. So he grew with me up to nearly a million. And then again, I grew out of his, uh, his, his, his bracket where he put me. So uh, one at the time a lesson was as well, if you grow and are financed by banks, you have to change banks once you grow, because um, the current bankers always see you as a fast-growing company, they can't follow you. They always see you in that bracket, and they want rather consistency, and 10% more per year is good, uh, but don't double your or triple your turnover or financing needs within a year or two. So therefore, that was as well one learning out of that time. I'm interested on the capitalization side too, because we kind of we're talking a little bit about debt financing at this point. And I think that's a big question that a lot of first time or early stage founders face as well as do I want to raise capital through equity or through debt? Or would you say you've been more debt dominant or did you learn some lessons on where you should have taken equity instead of debt or vice versa? All of it. <laughs> a long life, uh, always the same question. And um, um, it's, I ended up making half and half because then you're half happy and half unhappy about it. So that is, uh, it's always the question, you don't have to repay equity, which is good. Uh, it uh, helps your balance sheet. Uh, you, the, other, the, the downside is you have to share, although sharing is nothing bad. I rather have 10% of a big company than 100% of a small boutique thing. Um, so, um, but uh, I've had all situations and uh, I've had all seen a lot of pros and cons for both sides. So I can't really give an, the a generic advice here. Um, obviously, if you manage to get that in today's zero interest world, uh, it's great. Um, and as the people, and you only have to give a couple of percentage points in, in interest um, in, in, if the bank's uh, wanting negative interest. So therefore, if you are uh, lucky and can have long-term um, long -term funding from the debt side, take it. Uh, because the leverage always will be there if you uh, find fin finance your companies with debt and you own the equity. That's always the trick to do it. 
Did you ever start with debt? Because a lot of the problems that I've seen in the past are, especially early stage companies that are, you know, still are a few years away from being cash flow positive. They're taking debt at the beginning, and then they realize they need an, a big injection quickly. And then you go for equity, but now you've got all this debt on your balance sheets. You ever, do you ever run into problems like yes, that? Yes, I did. I did. Uh, because um, you, you, over time, you learn you always have to double the time frames of your expectation. You always have to half your, uh, the, the, the uh, turnover, the expected turnover, and maybe whatever, add 30% of the costs, even on your f worst business plan. And then you're on the safe side. Uh, so, but that's as well the lessons of life that you don't, you don't know the unknown unknowns, uh, obviously. Um, and that is what I just add uh, now into my thinking in the meantime. So in the early days, I did do too heavy debt financing in the beginning. And that's always bad because money that you don't own, you're always running after it. You're always in, under pressure. Money that, you do, money that you do own gives you freedom. And if you don't have that pressure, uh, then that gives you a lot of uh, more freedom. So today I rather go for equity financing. Love to share with people uh, because that gives me just um, a quieter day and not really necessary to, to run uh, in, in, in whatever, a hamster wheel or whatever um, against timelines, against repayment deadlines and all of right, that. Right, gotcha. So I just want to flip it on the other side a little. We talked a little bit about some, some fuck-ups, if you will. Um, I want to hear a little bit of your wisdom. So just to create a little scenario for you, you've got a, an aspiring young entrepreneur in front of you and you only have a few minutes to kind of pass some of the key few pieces of wisdom, if you had two or three key points that you feel that all first-time entrepreneurs should be prepared for? Are there any key things that you would want to tell someone, if it's your son or someone close to you that's about to jump jump in the deep end and give this a shot, what would you tell them? Well, number one, do it. Uh, when you get older, you always regret things that you never tried, that you never did. Uh, you don't regret things that you did and you failed because you tried it. At least you tried it. So do it. That's the first advice uh, idea. Um, then certainly one thing is be persistent um, because there, were, there are all those naysayers and people who say, oh, it will not work and, and uh, you'll have to go through them. Just believe in you. Just believe in, in everything and um, be persistent uh, and don't let people just throw you uh, back um, because um, th if it would be easy, everyone would do it. So uh, therefore, um, uh, that, that's maybe one thing. What goes in line with that is you have to be able to live with open situations quite well. People who love to have always clarity about things, maybe shouldn't do it. Um, and and uh, when I was young, somebody asked me, uh, well, Eric, do you want to live a life of a, of, a, of a roller coaster or of cups and saucers? And I said, what's that? Tell me. And so a roller coaster, if, if, if you found companies, you, it goes up and then you have a super time and then it, you fall down maybe if there is a, a trough or if there is an economic downturn and then it goes up and down again. So that is that life. If you love that, go and be a, become a founder. If you want to live a life of cups and saucers, and he explained cups and saucers come on the table in the morning, will be washed, will come on the table in the lunchtime, will be washed, will come in the evening. So if you want to have that regularity, don't do it. So uh, decide yourself, do you want to live the life of a roller coaster? Then, um, then, then you should do it. And, uh, so, and, and coming back to those open situations, that is what people really drives people mad very often. Because you have seven irons in the fire and you don't know which one works. And most often people lose their nerves and just they want to have clarity. They, they cannot stand to live very, uh, very long with all these open situations. And um, I, I s sometimes say exchange 
your nerves of steel with nerves of elastic band because they are more flexible. <laughs> but you have, your nerves have to be more flexible or you have to s s hold your breath longer than the people around you. If you do that, eventually people will agree to what you propose to them, uh, will, agree to, uh, will give in in negotiation situations, but don't give up too early. That's maybe all in that persistence uh, advice or whatever you call it. Man, I, I love that one. I'm, I was about to write it down. I'm going <laughs> to save it in the memory banks that nerves of rubber are probably better than nerves of steel because they're, they're flexible. That's really awesome. And the only other thing is as well, maybe dream big. Don't start too small. Shoot for the moon. If you end somewhere in the stars, that's fine. But shoot and, and really dream big. Um, uh, number one for yourself and Everybody wants to be part of a big story. If you already start with, oh, look, uh, in today's world with this platform, oh, there is this little platform thing that has not been developed and this little niche thing, oh, nobody's going to listen to you. Uh, find something really big, something really new, uh, where you would fight, live and die for, whatever. Uh, so with all your passion, with all your heart. That is something as well. Ask yourself... Do I just want to be a founder because everybody around me is a founder and, uh, oh, I have this little idea, I'm not really burning for it, but I want to be a founder. Don't do it. Try to find that big thing w which really makes you burning. I love it. Go big or go home, as they say in English. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. I could I could have this conversation for hours. Um, so many more questions, but uh, I want to wrap things up with just a couple questions that I ask all people on the podcast. Most of them find it annoying, but uh, this provides a little bit of insight into Eric the man and not just Eric the entrepreneur. So the first question is: I always find when I go into someone's home, the first thing I look at is their bookshelf. I feel like you can learn a lot about a person by knowing what they're reading. Is there anything that you have recently read or reading right now that you could share with us? Um, reading right, if you would look at my bookshelf, you would see a lot of uh, rather old fashioned philosophy books because that is my passion. Um, but uh, if you ask me what I'm reading right now uh, and don't smile about it, it's the Bible. And why is that? Uh, next week we are going with the family for a longer Israel trip. And uh, I said I I've ran across the book for all of my life, but I never really read it. And then I began earlier this year, and after I read the first five books, it became all so much clearer how all the religions developed and urged. So it, and it, it was really fascinating. It was a, a real story, uh, and it's really worth reading. So therefore, uh, it, so it may be a funny answer to the question, but that is what it is. And I'm looking forward next week we are going, and then uh, to see some of the places I, I read about. Nice. Well, that lines up with your old philosophy books, too, Maybe I think, it right? Does, yeah. it does somehow, uh, yes. You know, I, I hadn't read the Bible, and I worked in, in Palestine for a period of time, and ah. I ended up re reading more of the Old Testament, actually. That's but uh, yeah, there's uh, it's really great when you get to see the things that you're reading about yes, and connect those dots. And happiness and all the fighting and everything, a real story which is better than most of the storybooks written. <laughs> All right, the one other question. Um, what's on your playlist? What do you, what do you listen to in terms of music to put music, you in the Music, uh, uh, being a, a member of the Richard Wagner Society for maybe even a couple of decades, but a long time, I maybe should say it's, uh, there is nothing better than a, a Wagner music, but if you're asking for playlists, at the moment it's, I'm rather at the moment uh, into quite uh, modern, 
modern music, whatever, uh, FK Twigs, Taylor Swift, or Charlie XCX, or stuff that you may not think I would be interested <laughs> to listen in. But I, that's maybe as well, uh, rounding it up, my entrepreneurial thing. I always love the new thing. I always see what is the next thing, and so uh, who will develop out of those young artists then into the next big, big, big uh, uh, shot. Nice. And you get, I'm, I'm assuming you get a little help from your son on some of that new stuff? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Eric Schaefer, thank you so much for taking the time, inviting us to your lovely offices here in Essen. It was a wonderful conversation. I could do it forever. I have so many more questions I'd love to ask, but hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again. Thank you so much and all the best luck. This is a wonderful initiative. Well, folks, that was Eric Schaefer. Serial entrepreneur, investor, advisor, and Vehau OG. Coming up in episode 15, we'll introduce Tristan Cromer, lean startup guru and innovation coach based in the San Francisco Bay Area. We'll be learning about Tristan's fascinating journey that led him from rock and roll to Silicon Valley to becoming a globally recognized expert in all things lean. So for those of you out there considering your own startup journey or others who want to improve the management of your current one, this episode is one not to miss. Bis nächstes Mal.